So a couple of our kids have been reading books that are set during the, during the Second World War. We've been talking a lot in our house about the Nazis and the genocide of Jews and others. And one story of this time had to do with a Catholic priest named Maximilian Kolbe. Not one that my kids were reading, but a story that came out of this time period nonetheless. He was sent to Auschwitz in 1941 because he had sheltered Jews. He had protected them. And when one man in his barracks was missing, the Nazis decided to kill 10 random people by starvation. One of them worried about what would happen to him since he still had family outside. And so Kolbe volunteered in his place instead. He led the other condemned prisoners in song and prayer for three weeks. The Catholic Church canonized him in 1982. And the man he saved that day attended that service. You know, over the next months, weeks, and months, in fact, we've already begun to hear of stories of people in the medical field and others who have sacrificed their lives for others. They have cared for and acted selflessly in the face of infection and potential death, some of them even dying. Stories like Colbert's and ones that we hear from around the world in these times are heartwarming. They inspire us. They give us a sense of thankfulness and hope. And yet, there's another side to these stories. They can bring a sense of hopelessness. It's just one person that Colby was able to save. It's only a few patients that survived the sacrifice of these medical health care workers. But what if there was one servant who not only gives life in the place of his death, but also gives hope in the face of hopelessness? What if there's a chance that someone could substitute their life for the sake of others and allows us to live lives that have new meaning and gives us hope, even in the face of hopelessness? Let's read Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this servant of the Lord, this suffering servant, this servant of our substitution, Jesus Christ. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us now as we come to your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hope 
the sense of hopelessness. And Lord, help us to know the life that we've been given. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue in our series titled Servant Songs. If you're just joining us, these are the prophecies about Jesus found in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And last week we were in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13 through 53, verse 3, the verse prior to what we began with this morning. And we asked the question, have we disregarded the servant of sorrows? Are we those who have disregarded this servant, Jesus? And even those who have disregarded the servant, Jesus, there is a welcome of God, a welcome that's so complete and true that it allows all those who give their sorrow and grief to the servant of sorrows, who see through the sorrow the only hope available to us, which is Jesus. We saw that the servant of sorrows was rejected, that we might be welcomed. We saw this through the sorrow of rejection and the sorrow of welcome. Today we move in our text two verses, or into the next two verses in the song, or three verses actually. And while these servant songs speak of only one true servant, there are aspects of this servant that we've talked about that every follower of Jesus is called to live out in the embodiment of the servant of the Lord. All those who follow Jesus are called to be in a sense, servants of the Lord. We are to live out some of these aspects of this ministry of the servant of the Lord in our lives. But, as we've also talked about, there are only things that the true servant of the Lord Jesus is called to do. And these verses, for this one true servant, for these verses, these verses, they are for him alone to accomplish. These verses describe what only Jesus can do. And we are the ones who receive the full benefit. You see, only the one and only true servant of God, Jesus, could accomplish this. Because as Isaiah reminds us in verse 6, we all have gone astray. As Sally Lloyd-Jones began her letter from God through the prophet Isaiah, she talks about this we all have gone astray. We all have been like sheep. Notice it's all, right? All is the first word in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not some, not many, not even most. All. We all have like sheep gone astray. Astray in the folly and thoughtlessness of sin. That is what astray is. It's this folly and thoughtfulness. It's things that we don't even think of that we do. We've gone astray. It's sin leading to danger inherent in being sheep without a shepherd. You know, it's interesting. As I read this passage this week, it reminded me of our time last summer on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. I've shared this before, but there are more sheep and other animals on the Isle of Skye than there are people. There are only 10,000 people on the entire island. And yet there are tens of thousands of sheep. 
And these sheep would just wander around, literally everywhere. They had gone astray. They would stand in the middle of the road and you're driving on these very narrow one-track roads and you'd be coming around a turn and sheep! And you'd have to like slam on your brakes, swerve out of the way. They had no understanding of the danger that they were in. We hiked down what we called the cliff of death out to the northernmost part of the island. And there were sheep down there. We're like, how in the world do these sheep get down here? And how are they going to get back to their shepherd? And we asked people and people said, well, sometimes the shepherds have to actually take a boat out to get them because the sheep can't find their way back. The sheep had gone astray. They were a sheep without a shepherd. They had shepherds, but the shepherds weren't around. They just let them roam freely. And they were everywhere that we went. They were in danger, even if they didn't know it. But not only have they gone astray, not only have we gone astray, sorry, but we've deliberately sinned against God. We've, what the text says, we've turned. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Everyone. We've turned. It's the deliberateness of our sin. There are things that we do out of folly and thoughtlessness that we don't even think about that are sin. And there are things that we do deliberately that are sinful. We have turned. So how do we, all who have sinned, all who have gone astray, all who have turned away, how do we come back to the good shepherd? How do we get back up the cliff of death? You see, the penalty for the sheep that has gone astray, who has turned from the good shepherd, is death. So we need a substitute sheep to die for us. To step into our place, to take the punishment we deserve, we need the true servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's our point today. That's what we see in our text, that Jesus, the servant, the true servant of the Lord is our substitution. Jesus, the true servant of the Lord, is our substitution. We're just going to walk through verses 4 and 5 and see how he is our substitution. Verse 4 tells us that he carries us. He carries our griefs. He carries our sorrows. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The previous verse, verse 3, that we looked at last week, calls Jesus, calls this servant, the man of sorrows. And while Jesus experienced his own sorrow in this life, it is our sorrows that he carries that makes him the true man of sorrows. It is our grief that he bears that makes him the one who is acquainted with grief. These griefs and sorrows, these sufferings that we carry with us, the text says we're deliberately taken by him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's why Jesus can say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden. In Matthew chapter 10. Cast your burdens upon me and I will give you rest. In Matthew 8, the Apostle Matthew sees the healing ministry of Jesus fulfilled in these words. Matthew takes these words from Isaiah 53, verse 4, and he quotes them to show how Jesus' healing ministry is fulfilling what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He takes on the affliction of his people. He takes on the griefs and the sorrows of his people. Jesus heals those who are grieving, those who are full of sorrow, those who are afflicted with infirmity. Now some in the history of the church have used this for erroneous teaching about healing, that this is the, a promise that Jesus is to heal everyone and anyone who is in need of healing in this life, that everyone, if you have enough faith, can be healed. Jesus can and does heal. Even now, miraculously, those who are in need of healing but Jesus does not promise that in this life. He promises that he will be with us through the grieving, through the sorrow, through the infirmity, through the affliction. I will be with you always, Jesus says. But he does promise to fully heal us in the life to come. There will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness. The promise will be fulfilled. Yes, sometimes in this life, Jesus will miraculously heal. He will take our griefs and our sorrows. He will be afflicted. But the true healing, the full healing, because even if he heals in this life, there is still death to come. But Jesus promises a fuller healing, a fuller life to come, even for those who have faced death. He's also our substitute, verse 5 and part of verse 6. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Our transgressions, we read, were the cause. His suffering to death is the effect. We caused his suffering unto death. Our transgressions were the cause, and his suffering to death is the effect. It is our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His 
suffering and death was the effect of what we caused. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The chastisement here in in Isaiah, this, this idea that we are the ones that caused his death, that we are the ones, it was our transgressions, it was our iniquities. And because of that, chastisement was placed upon Jesus, literally the punishment of our peace. Right? The ones who are guilty of the transgressions and the iniquities, it is the chastisement of our peace that is placed on Jesus, on this servant. The punishment of our peace has secured peace with God for us. We see and with, or in some translations, by his wounds we are healed. This with or by is at the cost of his wounds. We are healed at the cost of his wounds. Literally, there is healing for us. We have received the accomplished reality of restored wholeness in the work of this servant. And at the end of verse 6, it reminds us, again, after we've been reminded that this is, that all we like sheep have gone astray. Like, this is all of us. This, what has happened to the servant was because of all of us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us As we read this, we are to be reminded, wait, he did, who would do this? He did this for people like me, for people like us? All of us, <laughs> corporately, but also everyone individually, right? All we like have, we've gone, like she would have gone astray, we have turned everyone all have turned away corporately. Everyone has turned away. And yet, this servant, Jesus, would die for people like you, for people like me. This is astonishing, frankly. The astonishing purpose of laying our sin upon him. Right? What we read here is that God the Father laid upon his servant, the true servant, Jesus, our sin. God the Father gathers into one place all of the sin of the world and places it under one 
substitute. One substitutionary victim. The sins of all the sinners whom the Lord purposed to save are placed upon Jesus, the suffering servant. The servant of substitution. The servant is the solution of the Lord to the need of sinners. Jesus really was a man of sorrows. But they weren't his own. He didn't deserve them. They were our sorrows. I don't know, fully understand. Even as someone who's followed Jesus most of my life, I still don't fully understand. But yet I trust that Jesus substituted himself for us on the cross. Theologians call this the imputation. The imputation is the fact that there is no way that God can turn a blind eye to our evil, to the evil of this world, to our sin, to our going astray, from our turning from Him, from our transgressions, from our iniquities. There's no way that God could turn a blind eye to how that has damaged his good creation. How that has damaged the image of God in each one of us. And how does God confront it? How is this damage paid for? Out of love for us, God charge that infinite debt to a substitute. Jesus Christ put himself in the place of sinners. The unbearable weight of their guilt was imputed to him. And he sank under that weight, but did, was not crushed. As we read earlier, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This, brothers and sisters, is the love of God. For those of us who are believers this day, we need to be reminded again and again and again and again that his life was substituted for ours. There's nothing that we can do to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus. What we find here, what we need to remember is that he loves us with an unending and never giving up love, that he can never love us any more or love us any less. 
Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And our identity found in Him gives us life and unending hope. If you're with us this morning, you'd say, you know what, I don't believe in Jesus. What we read today applies to you as well. Jesus substituted his life for you, yours. Scripture says, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were wandering astray, Christ died for us. There's no sense that you have to climb up the death, the cliff of death. Jesus has come down the cliff of death for you. And he carries you up out of death to life. Believe this good news and you will be saved. Ray Ortland, at the beginning of his commentary in this passage, writes the following. I'm just going to read it. The Christian faith is thoroughly miraculous, and some people choke on that. But they often miss that the, the most, mirac- most outrageous miracle right at the center of the gospel. In Romans 4, 5, Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. That's a real problem. Jesus walked on water? Okay, if you believe that. No one's harmed. But when God justifies the ungodly, he upsets the whole moral order of the universe, doesn't he? Everybody knows that God punishes the bad people, rewards the good people. That's his job. But the gospel disagrees. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. And what does that mean? It means that God declares guilty people innocent. It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. That goes beyond the power of a miracle. It's scandal. Are you open to the mega miracle and the arch scandal of the gospel? It doesn't matter if you're a conservative person or a progressive person. However you define virtue or vice, you have a sense of right and wrong. You form judgments and you expect God to. But how can he justify the ungodly? The answer is found in this text and throughout Scripture. He does it by being our substitution. And in his substitution, we find that there is no longer guilt in life or fear in death. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the substitution of your servant, Jesus Christ, that there is no longer guilt in life or fear in death, but that we have life, life in his name, and that we have hope. Hope in no matter what we experience in this life. 
his hope in the life to come. And Lord, that hope begins now as we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who substituted his place for ours. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to rejoice in the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond by singing.